masculinity was also something that was really challenging for me because I grew up with not one patriarchy, but two patriarchies, right? So there's like the Chinese version of patriarchy and then there's a, a Western version of patriarchy. And they gave me different messages um, and it made things very confusing because one patriarchy is already bad enough for you, it's already really bad. And then you have two sets of ideas. Um, and the problem with Western patriarchy is also laced with racism as well. So like all of that just kind of mixed in together along with just trying to survive as an immigrant uh, and watching a family trying to survive, like all of that just made things really tough for me and it, it had a toll on my mental health. everyone welcome to open mind night a show that talks about everything mental health and mental illness related i'm your host robin tamanaha licensed marriage and family therapist joining me on this episode is my guest harry Ao. hey everyone my name is harry Ao, and i'm a social worker and therapist who lives on the indigenous territory of dishes one spoon which is a wampum treaty of the Haudenosaunee and the anishinaabe this is commonly referred to as the city of toronto and as a therapist, I work with Asians to explore their unique identities and help them pursue the freedom to live the life that they want. Hi, Harry. Hey, how are you doing, Robin? Good. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. So little tidbit, Harry and I know each other um, through networking. So I'm super excited that he decided to um, come on. And I do want to talk about Asians and, you know, Asians in Canada. But first, um, I have some questions and I thought maybe you can explain to the listeners or the viewers um, about your experience in like activism and community work. I think when I first met you, that was one of the first things that I found out about you. So could you share like your own personal experience in activism yeah. and community work? Yeah. Um, so it actually started when I um, when I graduated from high school and went to uh, university. So I was doing my undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology. And I actually credit, to, um, credit this to two of my professors. Um, one is uh, Professor Sandra Bamford and one is Professor Maggie Cummings. They, they taught a lot of feminist theories in cultural anthropology. So that was kind of my first um, experience learning about you know, the patriarchy, masculinity, gender roles and really understanding that, oh, hey, so a lot of these things are very toxic to me and everyone around me. And that kind of spurred me into, into um, just wanting to learn more and wanting to get more involved in the community. And over time, um, I started doing more volunteering, doing community work, community building. I became a facilitator around these topics. Uh, I attended rallies and, um, and protests. Um, so I was, I was kind of like really doing a lot of the work and, and, um, and uh, just trying to, you know, put myself out there and do what I can, because I really, you know, this was something that I truly strongly believed in. Yeah, that's amazing. So was there, um, I knew you mentioned like, you know, school, anything else that had led you to like, per, like pursue like social justice type work too, like anything, anything else? Yeah, yeah. Aside from just really believing in the values, I think there were also stuff related to like, it gave me kind of a purpose. Um, and when I entered into it, um, just just from my own personal background, I really struggled with like, what's my purpose in life, and, um, and personal struggles around self worth. And I think um, 
the mental health aspect of joining and being um, doing activist work and community building work was really to to have a purpose, to have a purpose in life. And I truly believed in it, but also like it was kind of like let me get some external validation and 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 help myself feel kind of um, feel that kind of self worth by doing things, which was kind of like not great because really what's happening in here wasn't being addressed. Um, and instead I was looking outside for, for that self-worth kind of um, validation. Yeah. I'm curious, what was in here? Like what was like inside? Um, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of, um, I think self-loathing and a lot of self-judgment and criticizing. Uh, yeah, and I think maybe, maybe it might help to kind of explain a little bit about how I ended up being there mentally. Uh, yeah, and it really has to do with my kind of immigration story to, to Canada. Uh, so I came here when I was six years old, right? In Canada, six years old. And actually, I actually um, moved to a town called Markham. And Markham is filled with immigrants. Like 99% of the people there are racialized, <laughs> which is incredible. It's, a, it, it's incredible to have access to your culture, to, to be around other racialized folks. Um, but, there, but you can't avoid racism. You know, when you're here, when, when you're in this world, you can't avoid racism. It's worldwide. It's spread everywhere, right? And um, at a young age, I kind of learned the racism already. So um, you might be familiar with this term, but um, as a kid, I would call like other kids FOBs, right? Like F-O-B. Uh, and it's an acronym that stands for Fresh Off the Boat, which is really a derogatory term for people who we consider like too Asian, Right. And, um, and at a young age, I already learned that it was not cool to be too Asian. You want to kind of try to assimilate and integrate yourself into society. So there's part of me where it's like, all right, don't be too much. Don't be too much Asian. Don't be too Chinese. Um, so that really affected me growing up with that internalized racism. And I think masculinity was also something that was really challenging for me because I grew up with not one patriarchy, but two patriarchies, right? So there's like the Chinese version of patriarchy and then there's a, a Western version of patriarchy. And they gave me different messages um, and it made things very confusing because one patriarchy is already bad enough for you, it's already really bad. And then you have two sets of ideas. Um, and the problem with Western patriarchy is also laced with racism as well. So like all of that just kind of mixed in together along with just trying to survive as an immigrant uh, and watching a family trying to survive, like all of that just made things really tough for me. And it, it had a toll on my mental health. Yeah. Sounds like there's so many like layers to that, mm-hmm. like one on top of the other. What was it like being, you know, an activist, not just an activist, but like an Asian activist? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you made that distinction. Um, I think the, the idea or, or the, or the racism around, um, stereotype of, um, model minority myth was really big in how I experienced my life, including, um, what I was doing as an activist. Uh, so let, I'll just do a quick kind of rundown of what model minority myth is. Uh, so, so it's the idea that Asians are successful. And of course, it's a stereotype because there's a lot of Asians who are not successful in the way that you know white supremacy wants us to be. Yeah. And this idea of the modern minority myth came up in the 1960s civil rights movement, the Black civil rights movements, um, where it's kind of like white supremacy is 
response to saying, hey, well, there's a few of these Asians that are successful. So why, why is the Black community not succeeding? Why, why do they feel like there's in, uh, inequality in society? So it was kind of to, to really discredit the whole movement by saying that, well, you're both racialized, but one group is successful, but you're not. So what's going on here? And it's to hide that racism that exists. But of course, you know, Black communities are experiencing intense forms of racism, especially like at that time, right? Like not, not that it got much better now. Um, and, also, and also Asians were also historically always been experiencing racism and still experience racism. Mm -hmm. So part of that model minority myth really like played a toll on my own mental health around like shame. And because uh, shameful, number one, for, for, um, for supposedly being, supposedly having to be successful, but I never felt successful. That's number one. And then number two, as an activist, um, taking on the idea and thinking that I have privilege, right? But, um, but also wiping out the idea that I'm experiencing racism because if you're a model minority, how can you experience racism? You're succeeding. So in that sense, I was trying to get rid of my privilege when I was doing activist work. I'm like, okay, so how do I, how do I um, get rid of this? Um, and, and it's almost like I just continue to give and give and give because I have this privilege and this shame around that privilege. Uh, and, uh, and that made the work really hard because uh, I ended up thinking that my needs and desires were shameful. <laughs> that sounds really complicated too. Like, I don't know, like, I'm trying, like, as you explain that, I'm like, like you said, that sounds like really, really hard to do. And I also like, as you described that felt like, like heavy, like this heaviness yeah. and this like pressure, like it's to, mm -hmm. for it to be like a certain way and I think um you know even with the model minority you know myth too that's also part of it where it's like feeling like you have to do things properly feeling like it's got to be perfect feeling like it's got to be like this kind of rigid mm -hmm. way but then it sounds like at the same time also not trying to do the model minority like going against yeah. that that sounds really yeah. really hard yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah, and my brain was trying to jump through all these hoops, right? Of like, I'm trying not to be a model minority, but in trying not to be a model minority as an activist, I ended up being a model minority by doing all that work and trying to be like a successful activist, you know? <laughs> it, it was so strange. It was such a strange process. Uh, now that I think back about it. I know, and what, it, so what, it, I guess even like, let's say back then, you know, even like, what is like the successful activists like what's what's like the definition of that like in in my mind back in the day it was kind of like the selflessness right like just mm -hmm. give what you can being selfless and, and everything for the cause um which which is not sustainable like over time i've realized that this is completely unsustainable um it's not healthy for me uh it led to burnout um and also just led to a lot of anger and resentment mm -hmm. uh which which uh because i wasn't I was angry that I wasn't getting what I needed, but also still felt so much shame around having needs. Uh, so that was really challenging. Um, and uh, and uh, I burned a lot of relationships because you can't help have healthy relationships when you're angry and resentful. And and uh, it just it just didn't work that way. Yeah, almost kind of takes away the why, but then mm -hmm. I get that resentment. Like, how could you not be if you're putting others first, you know? So how did, um, 
how did this lead into therapy, like being a therapist? Oh, yeah, it was kind of like me looking for my own healing. So I, I would, I hit what I characterize as a rock bottom. So I kind of hit rock bottom and I was like, well, I got to make some changes. And, um, and uh, that change was scary. And I, I've seen, I think I've seen like five different therapists in my, in my like past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, just looking for the right one and also different ones helped me um, for different things at different moments. Right. Um, but also just kind of like seeing what's out there and getting the right support that I need. So that was a long journey around um, my own healing process. And uh, it was really challenging, really hard. And eventually, I think I went from not thinking too much about mental health to constantly thinking about it. And uh, it gave me a new framework kind of where I'm connecting like structural issues to mental health and how I can I understand these things together in tandem rather than as separate things. So that was really helpful for me to understand my own life. And in my process of becoming a therapist, it was, it was kind of like I was trying to be the therapist that I couldn't find for myself. Um, and I think that might be a very similar journey for a lot of therapists. <laughs> and that, that was my personal journey as well. Yeah. And now, you know, and, and since then, you know, you've been, you know, working with Asians and, you know, identity and all this stuff, you know, what, what has your experience been as a therapist, you know, for Asians who grew up in Canada? Um, sorry, say that again. Yeah. Like, what's your experience been, you know, now it sounds like, you know, I, I definitely resonate with that where it's mm -hmm. like being the therapist you kind of wish you had, you know, yeah, or would like, or I think for me, it's like, the, for me, at least personally, it's like the therapist I needed. That's, that's mm -hmm. mine, but yeah. Um, and so you have this connection to therapy and then of course, you know, working with Asians. So what's it now, what's it, once you were in that role and now that you like have been for a while, like what's it, kind of been like for you to be in that chair and like mm. servicing you know these you know Asians in therapy yeah yeah um it's been it's been interesting because um now my the way I approach therapy is that I gotta walk the walk so mm. um my perspective is I can only I can only support the client as far as I've gone myself um, so I need to continuously do my own work, um, and work on my, my own, my own feelings around, um, around, uh, self-efficacy and around following my own values and my own path and continuously kind of getting beyond that block, whatever is blocking me, whatever is um, keeping me back and all the traumas and, and uh, connections that, I've, that, um, that's happening in here. I just have to figure that out. And, um, and then. That personal work really lends into my work with, uh, with, um, with my clients. A lot of my clients also have gone through the same thing. And, um, and a lot of my clients that come in, they have very strong social justice values. Um, and, it, and it makes sense because they're looking for somebody, a therapist, who also have those values. And, and in my website, I, I do talk a lot about these things. So, so, they, so they feel connected when they read my website and then when they, when they talk with me. And that work, that work with them is, is incredible. Because um, they they're getting exactly what they needed, and and I'm also seeing a lot of myself in them, and that I want to be the therapist for myself, um, the the therapist I wanted for myself, and that happens to be for a lot of other people who are looking for a similar kind of therapist as well. Yeah, it's interesting how there's so much like 
self-development work and mm. also self-growth and kind of just inner work that that we do um as a therapist especially when we have these like connections to the clients that we serve mm-hmm. you know and, and so i'm here you know in the states in california but um and i don't know i, I kind of wonder you know what it's like um you know where you're located and like asians and trying to find a therapist to even, I know here it's challenging, interestingly, um, even though there is some diversity, but still it's like for some in some ways, what's it like, you know, for, you know, where you are, I don't know if you've heard anything, you know, from clients about what it's been like to find one even. Yeah. Yeah. From my understanding, it's the hardest part is finding someone that can speak uh, a particular language. Like that would be like the ultimate hardest thing to find. Yeah. Um, I think there's more and more younger therapists coming out um, and talking about mental health. Um, but uh, in terms of, um, um, and maybe maybe I just don't know them, but I, I don't, I'm not connected to a lot of um, therapists who are older than me, uh, who are working with uh, older population of, um, of, uh, of uh, Asians over here. Mm-hmm. But I also know there are, there are services here um, who specifically work with uh, Asian Asian populations um, and nonprofits who work with specifically Asian populations. So we do we do have services here, uh, but it's still it's still hard to find because it's not just your Asian identity that you really want an under, uh, your therapist to understand. There's also all these other things, and you're looking for so many things to match. And I just feel like the more Asian therapists that we can have out there, um, the better and easier it is for a client to find the right match. That's that's the best for them. Yeah. And I feel like you also have like a really unique niche in a way too, like given your experience. And it sounds like too, um, those that come to you, like you said, come from similar, you know, backgrounds in activism. So it's also a match in that way, because you're right. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just, you know, ethnicity and, and language, but it's all these other intricacies, which factors into like what they're going to talk about mm-hmm. in session or feeling like, does the therapist get it? you know, like my personal experience or what I'm, what I'm coming in for. Um, so I agree, like there should be more and more of us that way. There's like loads of, of options because everyone's all different, all therapists are unique, but also the clients as well. Yeah. 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 Um, how, you know, how do you feel about when it comes to culture like culture in general and like conceptualizing that culture. Yeah. So having, so having that background in cultural anthropology is really helpful. Um, And, and I've also just come up with my own way of understanding culture. Mm -hmm. So, so culture is very interesting thing because it's not a coherent thing, right? People tend to think of it as like, Oh, there's this thing and everybody follows those rules and, and practice things in the same way. But it's not true. And um, I can give you my example uh, of um, how complicated it is, right? So I was born in Hong Kong and Hong Kong has its own history of being colonized by the British. So it's culturally very different from the rest of China. I would consider myself Chinese, but if someone thinks of Chinese, like they may not be thinking of me, right? Because I am from Hong Kong, a very specific region. And then in China, there's also a lot of different um, ethnic minorities. So example, like Tibetans and Uyghur who has been who has um, experienced a lot of um, oppression and colonization from the Chinese government. 
so there's a long history of a lot of things going on, even within just one country. And then within a culture, people, um, there are subcultures that have overlapping um, they, uh, ways of practicing culture, but not completely the same. And then there's there's counterculture that exists specifically to counter to to like to go against the culture, right? Um, and then and then there's also uh, just people who choose to practice certain aspects of a culture, but not other aspects of a culture. And and everybody's relationship with the culture is very very different. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really complicated. Yeah. It's it's really really complicated, and it's not fixed in any any way, right? No, there's so many no, different yeah. layers to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, like you mentioned, someone's relationship to their culture. Mm-hmm. For, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled with, over time, really struggled with the idea of like um, teaching people how to work with specific uh, populations because it's really hard to say, hey, everybody from the Asian community experience this because that's not really true. Like everybody experiencing it a little bit differently. But I do think that there is a commonality in, in um, there's one commonality in what all Asians experience. Um, and before I, before I say it, what it is, we have to understand the category of Asian, right? So the category of Asian really only applies to a diaspora. So the people that live outside of Asia, because people in Asia do not identify as Asian. They will identify maybe with their home country, like being Vietnamese, or they may identify with, um, with uh, their ethnicity, like, like Ainu from, from Japan, right? So, so this category only applies to people, Asians who are outside of Asia. And because we're all categorized by white supremacy under this category of Asian, then we all experience racism because that's how people treat us because they all see us as Asians. And you can see that in, in, um, in the COVID-19 attacks, right? They were, they were supposedly attacking Chinese people, but they, racists don't know and they don't care if you're actually Chinese or not. They see a ra- Asian person and they'll attack you. So that's like a kind of common experience that we all experience is, is racism. Yeah. Even, um, you know, being someone who also works like, you know, with Asians, even the differences, you know, like it's, it's everyone thinks like Asian just all together one, you yeah. know, um, but there's actually like a lot of differences, you know, mm-hmm, like yeah. I'm Japanese, right. Yeah. But then, you know, I know others who are Chinese, Korean, and there are many different differences yeah. actually yeah. in just culture, family stuff. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just so many layers yeah. to where yeah. it's not just one lump yeah 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 and so culture you know definitely i hear you saying in a way kind of it's it's unique right it's layered and maybe even like specific you know it's Mm -hmm. individual experiences as well Mm -hmm. you know yeah not just like the culture or ethnicity Mm -hmm. or race that you come from yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I might, and I think one thing is that I might have similarities with my clients, but I don't know where that is necessarily. So I just have to ask the right questions because uh, another, if another Chinese person comes in, they may take certain aspects of the culture that, that I take on. So then we have that in common. Yeah. So, so um, we are similar, but we just can't make the assumption of where that similarity is. And there's definitely not one thing that we all share, ex- except at least in my opinion, racism. 
Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Very, very true. Um, is there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to touch on? Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, because uh, I do have a resource that helps kind of people um, really look at their identity as an Asian and, and what's unique about them and, and the rules that they're following, but maybe they don't necessarily want to follow and how do they kind of approach it in a way where it works for them while still feeling feeling like, you know, they're, they're still connected to their culture and their family. Uh, so maybe I could share my newsletter and, and uh, see if that these resources might be helpful for some of your listeners. Yeah. Yeah, so if you can go on my website, uh, harryltherapy.com, uh, you can you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Not Asian Enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, just it's just all about identity and our experiences as Asians uh, in North America. Cool. Is that like um kind of like a monthly type of newsletter, or how does it work? Yeah. So right when you sign up, I'll be sending you a few resources, and then um, from then on, it'll be a biweekly biweekly oh, cool. uh, newsletter. Yeah. Yeah, those are always neat too when it like continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah and I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. I'm just enjoying writing it. Yeah. Mm. You have a lot of good like information too. Oh, to thank you. Out. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I love that name, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. I really like it too. Because at first I'm like, is it is it too four? Like, are people going to be like, what? What do you mean not Asian enough? But, um, but uh, I think I connect with the name and I feel like um, it sounds like you connect with it. Yeah. And I feel like some people really do feel that, you know? I feel like many probably have like had that thought like at some mm-hmm. point in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's my, so my interesting. Parents so. My parents don't think I'm Asian enough. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, they're like, you, you don't know Chinese culture. You don't know the language. You, you can't write it. And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> Well, yeah. makes you feel any better. Uh, being Japanese, I heard the same thing in different ways from like people I knew, even though I kind of know the language and I can read it, but I don't know what they just yeah. never, you know, yeah. even this kind of um, internal feeling that mm-hmm. I felt too. Yeah. Not just kind of what I heard, but like internally not feeling Japanese enough yeah. or not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was very yeah. strange because like where I'm from, um, because I'm in Orange County, so it's like very diverse, mm. but like where I went to school, predominantly Caucasian, but there was a blend of Asian, you know. So it's like kind of always like straddling the the two and trying to lean into one more than the other at yeah. times, yeah. depending <laughs> it kind of like swayed. Um, and ultimately not sometimes feeling like either. It was really mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the funny thing too, is that maybe some of your, maybe, maybe you have some Japanese friends that would consider you like way more knowledgeable about Japanese culture and language than they are. Right. But then, but then there'll be someone else that comes in and says, no, you're not. And, and I'm the same too. Like I speak Cantonese. I can somewhat read it. But then when my parents are talking about certain things, I'm, it goes over my head and they're like, you're not that Chinese, Harry. You, you, you gotta learn, you know? Like, it just depends on the perspective, like what your identity is in your in your, in your culture. Mm-hmm. I was very much like a later in life person mm. um, when it came to embracing, embracing my culture. And I like skipped a generation because like um, my parents, it's probably like way off, I don't know how off topic this is, but like my parents, um, 
don't aren't so much connected with the culture because mm. like their parents were like the Nisei who were in the internment camp. So they were trying to mm. like not, you know, kind of more lean into Caucasian and mm-hmm. not so much embrace, yeah. you know, Japanese. So it kind of got yeah. skipped for me. So mm-hmm. then for me, it was like me, not until like after high school where I was yeah. wanting to somehow connect more. And yeah. so I took Japanese language in college and cultural studies and yeah, that's incredible. My family yeah. didn't talk about anything. Uh, and, and there was this horrific Im- experience, you know, and it wasn't always like we knew about it and it was kind of talked about, but not so much. So there was this like disconnect. Um, but then I remember like later trying to like embrace it and then like starting to learn Japanese and then like mm-hmm. grandparents' friends would then try to speak to me, but it was like a little too advanced for what I had been learning. <laughs> or like, yeah. I thought you knew. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's so confusing yeah it's so confusing um yeah like identity is just very confusing thing right but I think it's also so great like I'm I'm kind of like thinking oh my god Robin you went back and you learned the language like that's really incredible (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah it was so hard um especially like when you're in college too like there's like this like I think there's this like age where it's um I forgot the age it's like super young where when you pick up a language, you won't have so much of an accent. It's like a mm. little, yeah, I was well past that. Um, and so, and, and it was so funny because I remember like at one point when I was learning it, you know, cause it's got like three different forms of alphabets with Japanese and all these, you know, oh. things. and uh, I remember asking my mom like, well, how come, how come it's semi Japanese school? Cause that was like a thing. I think for my mom's generation and the other generations where you go to Japanese language school mm-hmm, it's a yeah. in addition to like regular school. Yeah. And my mom was like, what? Oh no, I never wanted to go to that. I wasn't going to send you to that, you know? So she also kind of imposed her own, yeah. her own distance. She's like, I just never thought you would have wanted to because like, I didn't really want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? I know. I, lo- I love that because it's like such a generational thing, right? Where Where like, yeah, because my mom put me in those schools and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, because you know when you're a kid and and you just want to play, right? Like you're you're done school, you want to play. And then all of a sudden, like every every Friday night, I had to go to another school. And I was like, why? Why is this happening to me? And on top of that, I was an immigrant here. I was learning English. I, my mom made made me learn French as well, which is another, which is a national language in Canada. Uh because when you're in ESL in Canada, um, you don't have to learn French. And my mom was like, no, this kid is going to learn French. So I learned English. I learned French. I was still getting a grasp on Cantonese with my mom. My mom put me in uh, Mandarin school because uh, uh, she, she just knew far ahead that like Mandarin is going to be the, the important language, not Cantonese, right? So I was thrown in like four different languages in one go. And uh, I really only maintained like one and a half. Uh, yeah, so like English... And then half Cantonese, but then it was later on where I learned, learned, um, learned better Cantonese and learned to read and write a little bit better. And uh, with Mandarin, because because I learned Mandarin as a kid, I can make the sounds, but I couldn't speak it. So when I went back to learn Mandarin, it was so much easier, and I didn't speak with that much of an accent uh, because because I have the ability to make the sounds. But like, it's so interesting, just generationally how how we experience our culture and how much or how little we get exposure to our culture yeah yeah very very true oh my gosh so going about about the the um the pronunciation I do that 
where like I'm not fluent in Japanese, but for some reason, if I if it's like a new word name something and I don't know how to pronounce it, it'll come out the way Japanese. <laughs> how, wait, how, how, it. It's the weirdest thing, the way I say the letters. Yeah. How did you learn Japanese as a kid at all? So I heard it a lot. Like my my mom's mom, um, she would probably so we didn't know what she was saying. Like she would only speak on the phone in Japanese. So I heard it a yeah. lot and like some of the slang kind of general stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but she didn't she didn't speak Japanese to me, my grandmother. My dad's dad was trilingual, but he never oh, yeah. English Japanese uh, native Hawaiian. So but again never so I kind of had heard things um Mm. but not it wasn't really communicated to me but then at least when I into college when I was like okay I'm gonna take this language like that's gonna be my language of choice because you have to choose a language class um I kind of already had the gist of some of the pronunciation Mm -hmm. stuff because I think of just my ear and hearing it yeah yeah Wow, maybe you're just maybe you're just someone that's naturally good at languages because I don't think I would have been able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and see, and my the way I learn things is kind of interesting because like I forgot a lot, a lot of um, the language because I think I hit like intermediate level when I graduated, but I forgot like vocab and stuff like that. But I remembered the characters because I'm a visual learner. Mm. So like my memory is strange for like anything, recalling a movie title, all that. I picture like the poster or the image. And if I can picture the image of something, I can remember the name or the word. That's kind of how my memory works. So with Japanese, since I really got down all the characters and and the, um, the reading in that way, that kind of helped me to know how to pr- pronounce things and the and what to so it's really odd because I'll be in like yeah. the gra- Japanese grocery store and I'll be able to read everything but sometimes I don't know what I'm reading it's like because uh, <laughs> I know yeah. the but I'm yeah. like again yeah um, yeah yeah but it's language is hard mm-hmm. yeah and and it's definitely like if you don't for me since I don't use it. I kind of lost a lot of it because mm. I don't have anyone to speak it to. I try watching Japanese shows, see if I can like pick up on, you know, mm-hmm. words here and there. <laughs> yeah. But I don't have anyone to like practice with because my parents yeah. don't know. Mm. So um, it's hard to maintain when you're like not around it. I think when COVID happened, that was also hard because I'm around a lot of, we have like great food here in Orange County and I can like be around it if I go in certain restaurants and stuff yeah. like that. But when the pandemic hit, I just, you know, like not going out. So I'm not yeah. going to be around it as much. So I definitely lost a lot, but yeah. 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 It's hard. I'm, I'm losing my Mandarin too. Like the same thing. Cause I learned Mandarin when I was in Beijing when I lived in Beijing for about five months. Uh, and, uh, and since moving back, um, I, I've, it's, I've been back for like, for like a long, like more than a decade now, my Mandarin is really bad. It's, it's just not where it was, you know, 10 years ago. Hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's definitely mm-hmm. hard. I think it's interesting. I think I have a, an appreciation for it more now, now mm-hmm. that I'm older. Yeah. I think when I was younger, how, I was like, eh. I'm, I'm curious, how does your, where did your grandpa learn native Hawaiian? 
So my, um, my dad's side's from Hawaii. So like oh, okay. my dad, yeah. So my dad was born and raised on Oahu or like the countryside, um, area. And so my grandpa lived there like nearly his, I mean, his entire life. Yeah. And so he, um, he picked it up there because he lived there, but also he went to a boarding school in Hawaii, like boys boarding school. So he was around, um, Japanese is like very predominant in, uh, in Hawaii, like Japanese culture. So yeah. a lot of the fellow students, they were either Japanese and like, you know, knew Japanese and English, or they were, yeah. from, you know, originally born and raised and they were more yeah. native Hawaiian. So he picked yeah. up on Hawaiian there. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Cause we, we rarely get stories around like racialized people being friends with racialized people. Um, and, and like, yeah, and I just love that because it exists, you know, like racialized people are, have been like friends and allies and been doing things together, like uh, all of history here, right? But it's just, we never talk about it because it threatens white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was um, ve- very, you know, looking back, my, my grandpa really, I mean, he was very social, a little more of an extrovert, you know, in some ways. And even when he moved him, um, when he moved here to the mainland, he formed his own connections and connected with others who were Japanese or Hawaiian. So he yeah. kind of also created, yeah. you know, yeah. a circle here and he would see them one time a week for coffee. I mean, they were constantly getting together. Mm-hmm. And so he was, you know, doing just that. Like he was also taking taking what he had there um on Oahu and and also doing that here mm-hmm. um in his later adult life so yeah, yeah it's which was I and I'm kind of I'm really amazed you know yeah. too because I, th- I think that's like really cool yeah that that is so awesome because he's yeah like he's building community right? he's community building and and for me I would I would consider that kind of activist work you're building community with other people um and um and that's kind of that's kind of how we get to understand each other. We, we actually have real relationships with each other, right? It doesn't just have to be in doing activist work. It's just having a coffee and enjoying time with each other. Like that is so powerful. Yeah, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. I know that's something that um, during the pandemic, I that became a value of mine is like mm-hmm. connections and relationships. And especially during the pandemic, it just, we just mm-hmm. got a little yeah. creative with it, with it being virtually, but it's definitely you know, possible. And I think if history and especially the past few years of um, the pandemic has taught us anything is that it's, it's very, very important and we need to mm-hmm. do it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, before we end, I know you meant you, you mentioned a newsletter. Did you mention your website? I can't remember yes. if you mentioned it. Oh, you did. Yes, okay. Uh, yeah. Good. So what I'll do is for the listeners um, and the viewers, I'll put it in the show notes and then also on the YouTube video so they can just easily click on it if they want to sign up for the newsletter or just find out um, more about you. Okay. Yeah. Yay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was great having you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for a lovely conversation. Yeah. And I liked our little chit chat at the end. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> All right. We'll take care. All right. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening. 
Hopefully this was informative or helpful. If you think this episode may be helpful to others that you know, be sure to share this episode with them. The resources mentioned and the contact information for today's guests are listed in the show notes. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating. If you would like to stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast and follow the podcast Instagram, Open Mind Night Pod. Also, this podcast is not psychotherapy or counseling. If you need to speak with a professional, you should find one local to you and contact them directly. If this is an emergency, please call your local emergency number or go to your nearest emergency department. 